you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. That can be found on page 493 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. But Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this moment that we have to consider and meditate upon your word. God, I ask that because we live in a world that is sometimes makes us captives and hostages to sight and sound and taste and and, and the, the touch, Lord God, of, of this world, the sense of it, Lord, we, we pray that, God, you would release us from our sensory prison and open our eyes to see things as they really are. God, instead of seeing you as common, Lord, we, we pray that we would see Jesus glorified this morning, that our eyes would be opened and that we, he would be clearly revealed to us in his word. Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need you to open our minds, open our hearts, open our, our, our the eyes of our spirit to see things as they really are. God, I pray that you would just work through me and let me 
surrender this stubborn tongue of mine to your purposes and to your service. And, and God, let your people be blessed by the things that are written in your word. Don't let the truth of these things be corrupted by my faults and opinions, Lord. But I pray that they would just revel in the brightness of your shining radiance this morning, Lord God. So, Lord, only you can do that. This is a miracle, a miracle of hearing, a miracle of speaking that only you can properly execute. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just have your way in all of us this morning together as we hear your word, as we meditate on it. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our one and only risen Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So last week, in the text that we were looking at in our continuing study of the book of Mark, Jesus revealed to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be rejected by the Jewish leaders and then be killed, but that he would rise again on the third day. And as you'll recall in that text, he was rebuked by Peter because Jesus, in telling him what was really going to happen, was violating Peter's own expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. And he told the crowd that was forming in that moment, he told them that that the cross wasn't Jesus' alone, but that Everyone who truly belongs to Him, everyone must truly embrace the cross. And if they refuse to embrace the cross, then they're deceived and they actually have no part in Him whatsoever. But after speaking of His own death and the death sentence under which His followers must live, He makes a promise that seems like almost a hard right turn in this conversation, this kind of heavy conversation that Jesus is having with his followers. And he says to them that this promise that some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, the cross Jesus presented was an inescapable reality for everyone who would follow him. But what he's saying here is that the revelation of his glory would be just as inescapable. That that those who follow him, those who take up their cross, would see his glory. Now, as I mentioned last week, it's critical that we take notice of and don't over or under interpret the time frames that are in this promise, that are very clearly defined. What does Jesus say? He says, some standing here. He's saying that at least some of the disciples will not taste death. They will not naturally die. and, And they won't die until they see the kingdom of God come with power. They would see with their own eyes the unveiled essence of God's promised kingdom. Christ assured them that they would get, even though they've been told Jesus is going to the cross, they have to carry their cross, that Jesus assures them that they would get a glimpse of of His kingdom glory now. 
that something was imminent, that they were going to see something, that they wouldn't have to wait for some, some far off time, but that they would see it now. The cross that they must carry wouldn't doom them to a life of futility and disappointment. And may I just point out to you that that's a great promise for you. Because as followers of Jesus, the same requirement rests upon your shoulders as rested upon their shoulders. You too must carry your cross. But the promise is that your life doesn't end with a cross. It doesn't end with futility or disappointment. The promise ends that at the end of this road on which we carry our cross, which will lead us to death, at the end of that road is the unveiling of His glory. Now, there are five potential ways that we can interpret what Christ meant when He said that some of them standing there would not experience death before they saw the kingdom's power. Now, first, many interpreters of the Scriptures believe that He was speaking about the transfiguration, which will be the subject of our text today. Some also believe that He was speaking of His crucifixion and resurrection. Obviously, that was a time when the purposes of God, the redemptive purposes of God were moved forward and the kingdom became, if I can say it like this, more real. Others believe that he was speaking about the day of Pentecost and the proclamation of the gospel, the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel that would happen throughout the world in the first century and thus establishing the church. Again, we see a major move forward for the kingdom of God. Others uh, believe that he might have been speaking of the complete and utter destruction of Old Testament Judaism when uh, that happened when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem along with the temple in AD 70. And others who read this verse think he's speaking more in a far distant future sense of his return at the end of the age when he reigns in a new heaven and a recreated earth from his throne in the new Jerusalem. Now, I want to point out to you that the first four possibilities are all legitimate interpretations. I am not going to fight for one of these interpretations of the first four, the transfiguration, the crucifixion and resurrection, the day of Pentecost, or the destruction of Jerusalem. All of those are legitimate. Because they involved a progressive disclosing of the glorious power of the kingdom of God, and at least some of the apostles that, that heard him say this were alive to witness each of those events. But I don't think that Jesus was speaking in this, in this verse about his return and his reign at the end of the age because that would mean, by necessity, that he got the time frames wrong. Why? Because all of the apostles are now dead. They do not exist anymore except in heaven. And so if he said some of them won't stand, standing here won't taste death, then it couldn't be the end of the age. The most likely interpretation, even though I'm not fighting for this particularly, is that he's referring to the transfiguration. And we can, we can assume that because of the proximity of this promise that Jesus makes to the account of that event. See, what the takeaway from this, all of the point of this is this. Please hear me on this. Jesus did not want his disciples to only think of the kingdom of God in a futuristic end-of-the-world context. And guess what? Jesus doesn't want you to do that either. 
Mark's gospel begins like this, with Jesus teaching these words, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know what that means? Right around the corner. It's imminent. And so, this idea that the kingdom is somewhere off in the distant future is not anything that Jesus or the apostles preached. In Luke 17, we have these words, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is, present tense, in the midst of you. But guess what, guys? It's here. So the scribes and the Pharisees were preoccupied with when the kingdom of God would come. Timelines, events. Read the Bible and the newspaper side by side. But Jesus instead points them not to when it will come, but where it is right now. When the king showed up, guess what came with him? The kingdom. The kingdom came with the king. His kingdom rule, his power, his glory, it all came right along with him. Now, for most, it was concealed. But Christ is promising here that some of them are going to catch sight of it. So six days after the prediction of his own death that we talked about last week, and the proclamation that following him with a cross of their own will be the requirement of all the disciples, Jesus takes three disciples, Peter, and the two brothers, James and John, and they go for a hike. And we've seen Jesus pull these three, in particular, aside before. Do you remember when he raised the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue? Who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. And we're going to see it again, where he kind of pulls them aside from the rest uh, later in Mark. But the Bible tells us that he took them up on a high mountain. Now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, to Israel, there's not... A lot of high mountains like we would think of maybe in Colorado or, you know, uh, the, the Himalayas or the Andes or something like that. Um, and so this is traditionally understood to be Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is about 40 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And, and Mount Hermon is very important to the climate and agriculture of the region because in a relatively flat and dry region, Hermon is a snow-capped mountain most of the year. It rises 9,200 feet above sea level. And, uh, and so this is, this is an image. When Jesus is walking up the mountain with him, hiking up the mountain, it, it gives us this idea of going up the mountain or having a mountaintop experience, language that we're all familiar with. In the Old Testament, mountains were often the place where God met with people to either reveal or to restore his covenant. Think about it. Moses was given the law where? On Mount Sinai. Elijah prayed down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel in a showdown with the prophets of Baal that were employed by wicked King Ahab and his horrible wife Jezebel. Jesus himself preached on mountains and prayed on mountains in the Gospels. Now this isn't to say, I'm not getting weird and mystical here. I can be weird but not mystical. Um, Jesus, this isn't saying that mountains are inherently more spiritual it's just that God chooses at times in Scripture to interact with His servants on mountains because of the, the deep 
shadow, the picture, the symbolism of this, the, of going up high to, 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 to be with God and, and to, and to uh, come closer in proximity. And the deep symbolism of this location of going up the mountain probably would not have been lost on these three disciples. And we're told that once they are there, once they're on the mountain, that something absolutely incredible and unexpected takes place. Jesus is transfigured before them. Now this word transfigured isn't one we use a lot, but the word is uh, metamorpho in the, in the Greek. And, and what it means, it's the same word we get metamorphosis from, and what it means is a change in figure or appearance. The, 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 the picture is being painted of like when a caterpillar emerges as a butterfly. That there's a, a complete change of form that's happening. And Luke focuses on the, the appearance of Christ. It says that his face was altered. Man, wouldn't you like to have just one snapshot of what that meant in reality and fullness. His face was altered. Now Mark focuses on the radiant brightness of his clothes. They weren't just clean, they were as no one on earth could bleach them, Mark says. His clothes were, were dazzling and shining like the radiance of the sun at full noonday. And the reference to, this, to his clothes, it may seem interesting that Mark doesn't mention his face, he mentions his clothes, but... But that's really significant. Why? Because in the book of Daniel, when, when uh, Daniel is describing the Ancient of Days, the title he gives to God, he says that he was uh, arrayed at how? He was wearing white, pure white robes. And this means to these seeing this, there's some connections being made that Christ is God. His divine nature was being revealed to those who were mostly familiar with his human nature. They'd seen him sleep, they'd seen him hungry, and now he is literally blazing before him, before them. Think about the angels who appeared at Christ's empty tomb and his ascension. What were they dressed in? They were dressed in, the Bible says, dazzling robes. And this identified them, as well as Christ of the transfiguration, as being not of this world, but being heavenly, being divine. You get the theme goes further in Scripture. John describes the glorified Christ in Revelation as having hair that is white as snow. Now, let me point out to you that this isn't like most of us who have hair white as snow. It's not because Jesus was aging or decaying. It was a symbol of His purity, of His holiness. The judgment seat of God before all the nations, the, the, all the nations will stand before at the end of time, is called what? The great white throne. So you have this idea of whiteness and purity and brightness. And what is that about? It speaks of the, this brightness surrounding God. Is talking about His unstained perfection in everything. The disciples had seen Jesus 100% fully man. But man, what were they seeing now? Jesus truly 100% fully God. Jesus' robes shone as bright as the sun. Now think about, again, some imagery here. When God 
allowed all of his goodness to pass before Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, the glory of God was so intense that Moses' face literally glowed when he came down from the mountain. And needless to say, this freaked people out. <laughs> the, the children of Israel did not like seeing that. If, if, if Daryl had come in this morning and his face was glowing, we would want to know what kind of nuclear reactor he'd been working at. And this is, and, and Moses is glowing, and, and it was so intense that he had to wear a veil just so the people wouldn't be frightened. But Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is not reflecting God's glory. He is the source of it. He is what made Moses' face glow. It was blazing outside of him. The writer of Hebrews captures this essence of Christ when he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the Jesus, the God, that was revealed to these three disciples. Now follow the timeline here. Of the last few weeks, the Father had revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And Jesus then immediately followed that up with a prediction that the Messiah must die and rise again. And now, putting all of that together, the disciples are getting their first glimpse of this reality that Jesus would not be just a helpless victim of other people, but He was in fact Yahweh, exalted and resplendent in glory. And if this story couldn't get any more otherworldly, it is at this moment when Jesus is joined on the mountain by two people long since gone from planet Earth. Moses, who led the people out of Egypt, gave them the law from the hand of God, and lived and served the people, and when he died, was buried on Mount Nebo by God himself. And he joins Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah, who never died, but was taken to heaven in a, in a, a, a whirlwind with a chariot of fire, Never died, and now, that was hundreds of years before, and now he shows up on the mountain with Jesus. And he begin, they begin speaking with Jesus. Now, I want to understand, because sometimes we get so many Hollywood images. These guys were not resurrected. They weren't zombies. They weren't reincarnated from some other form. They had come, literally, from before the presence of God to speak to Jesus about his redemptive mission. Luke tells us that through his death on the cross. That was the subject of their conversation. They did not talk about the weather. They didn't talk about the local Jerusalem sports teams. They talked about what was most important, and that was Jesus' mission. And also, I want you to know that Moses and Elijah weren't just two random 
Bible characters that showed up. It, it wouldn't be like him. Yeah, they could have gone with anybody. Abraham and Melchizedek or David and Esther. They could, it wasn't like that. There was a reason that they were there. Their presence on the mountain was ordained to illuminate a specific aspect of Christ's glory. See, Moses was Israel's great lawgiver. He brought the people the Ten Commandments after God gave them to him. And therefore, he represented the voice of God's law. Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet, and he represented all the volumes of prophetic utterance that God had sent his people over the centuries. And then thirdly on the mountain, there was Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said these words, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, Moses, or the prophets, Elijah, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he had come here, and what a beautiful picture that we see of this fulfillment that he spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus perfectly, and the only one to ever do it, born of woman, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He lived an absolutely sinless life. And, and as to the prophets, all of the prophets pointed to Christ in one way or another. And now, at the end of all that prophecy, Jesus has arrived on the scene. He has fulfilled both the law and the prophets. Paul says that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Peter says that the prophets were all searching for the salvation that Christ would bring us. And so Christ is the end of the law and prophetic longing for all who repent and believe. And by the way, that's the portion of the sermon that's the good news. Christ is the end of the law and prophetic longing for everyone who would repent and believe. And this divine meeting on the mountain was the conclusion of the law and conclusion of the prophets as the primary means of God's communication to the human race. See, the shadows were giving way to the substance. And the substance was the Son of Man as He finished His work. Hebrews 1.1 says this so clearly and so beautifully. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. How? By the prophets. But in these last days, how does He speak to us? He has spoken to us by His Son whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. And seeing all this, shocker, the disciples are terrified. They are shaking in their boots. When Jesus came walking on the Sea of Galilee, we talked about several weeks ago, they thought He was a ghost. Well, now they're seeing two literal disembodied spirits standing with Jesus on the mountain, and they are frightened. But I don't think it was the... The, the, you know, the presence of Moses and Elijah that terrified them. It was the glory blazing out of Jesus. And please take note of that, because in modern Christianity, we speak about and we sing about being in the presence of God in such a casual, almost cavalier manner. But in both the Old and the New Testaments, being in the presence of God always resulted in crippling fear. Not comfort, 
Isaiah didn't say, ooh, I just need some God time here in the temple. No! He fell down on his face and he said, woe is me! I am undone. Why? Because I have seen the Lord. I've experienced His glory. When John saw the resurrected Christ in Revelation, he fell on his face as a dead man because of the unveiled glory. If you think that you will casually and familiarly tiptoe into the presence of God, you are so deceived. When people saw God, glory unveiled, they fell on their faces, they hid their eyes from His glory. So Peter, the great spokesman of the Twelve, has a brilliant idea. He says, hey, here's an idea. Let's, we're here. The glory is revealed. Let's build some tents. Let's stick around a little while. Let's build a tent for Moses, for Elijah, and for Jesus. And most commentators feel like that he was just wanting to prolong the experience in the presence of the Lord. But see, the fear I spoke of makes me wonder if that's Peter's reasoning at all. Mark even tells us in his text that we read that Peter was just babbling nonsensically because he was too scared to know what to say. Have you ever said anything really stupid when you were afraid? You don't have to admit it. I mean, you you know where liars go, but, but you don't have to admit it. Peter is just struggling for words to put this in context, and the first thing you can think of is, hey, let's turn this into a resort. But there are at least two observations that I would make about Peter's motives for saying that. Perhaps he missed the point because he just wanted to stay comfortably the way they were. See, Moses and Elijah were great Jewish men. They confirmed the Old Covenant and they testified to ethnic Israel as God's one and only chosen Peter. And to be honest, that's exactly how Peter liked it. But it, it seems that he thought in looking at this that Jesus was equal to Moses and Elijah. He, said, he, thought, he, he certainly didn't think that he was less, but we don't have any evidence that he thought he was greater. He just wanted these three historical Jewish celebrities to be together to, to enjoy this revealed glory. Who wouldn't listen to Jesus in all of Israel, if he was walking around town accompanied by Moses and, and Elijah. But this moment was not to make Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. This, mo this moment was purposed by God to show Jesus' absolute superiority to Moses and Elijah. How often... Are you and I, if we're honest, guilty of wanting just what we find comfortable and convenient to, to become our status quo? Don't rock the boat. Just let everything be easy for me and comfortable for me. We don't want to carry our cross like we talked about last week or move forward at the command of Christ. We want what we want. We want to avoid sacrifice and submission, those two unpleasant prerequisites of every truly obedient Christian life. We all love the mountaintop, don't we? I do. 
I love the mountaintop. The extraordinary moments and the outpourings of special grace in our times of worship and prayer and times of peace and times of outward joy. I love those things. Everyone does. When we experience things like that, we want to build some tents to stay a little longer, don't we? Just camp out here. This is great. This is awesome. Often, we all have tried to make the extraordinary ordinary. I want this to be my status quo. But as Peter babbles on, they're suddenly overshadowed by a thick cloud. And a thundering voice booms out of the out of the cloud says these words this is my beloved son listen to him what is that saying the voice the voice of god is saying you have heard moses and elijah you have heard the law and the prophets they have unanimously testified to the superiority of Christ, you must now listen to Him. The voice simultaneously corrected the disciples, affirmed and confirmed Christ's authority, established Christ as the foundation of the new covenant, as the law and the prophets were the foundation of the old one. And with this, with this voice, the cloud dissipated. The brightness of Jesus' heavenly glory was once again veiled. And the two Old Testament saints returned to the presence of God. And Jesus strictly charged the three shaken disciples not to tell anyone what had happened on the mountain until after he was raised from the dead. See, Jesus spoke of the cross that was his destiny. And this is the, one of the great lessons of the transfiguration. He spoke of the cross that was, it was his destiny. And nothing happened on that mountain to change that. The cross was still on the horizon for Jesus. But on the top of that mountain, the transfiguration shows us that the cross, though bloody and despised, could not nullify the eternal glory of of Christ. There is nothing the cross could do to squelch the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. The mountaintop experience was concluded and they made their way back down the mountain to rejoin the other disciples. But now, these three had questions. Do you think you would have had questions if you had shared that experience with Jesus? You wouldn't have walked away and said, eh, that's pretty cool. No, they had questions. All of their theology was now being challenged. Peter had confessed, as I said earlier, that Jesus was the Messiah. They had just seen with their own physical eyes Elijah. But the scribes had taught that Elijah would come before Moses, that, that Elijah would physically come back before the day of the Lord when the Messiah appeared. And add to this that Jesus, here he was again, just like he was a few days ago, speaking about rising from the dead, which, as we talked about last week, they probably thought meant the general resurrection at the end of the, at the, end of the age when, when everyone will rise to be either judged and, and, and um, 
uh, punished or judged and rewarded. That, this is what they thought about when Jesus was talking about rising from the dead. And once again, just like last week, their expectations, the expectations of their deeply held theologies are being messed with by reality, by Jesus, by His words. And if I could issue a caution to this congregation, I would say, beware of holding so tightly to a doctrinal position that you try to make what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually revealed fit into the narrow, narrow confines of your doctrinal position. Instead, what we should do is submit all of our doctrines to what Jesus actually said. Amen? After discussing this conundrum about Elijah and rising from the dead, privately among themselves, they bring it to Jesus. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, Jesus tells them something that was amazing to them. Guess what, fellas? The scribes were right. But Elijah did come first. He came in the person of John the Baptist, the forerunner who announced the arrival of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Matthew's account of the transfiguration uh, uh, confirms and asserts that he was talking about John the Baptist. And Jesus says that John's role was to restore all things. This was John's preparatory mission of calling the Jews to repentance before the arrival of Messiah. But then, Jesus takes the focus of their conversation, descending the mountain, off of Elijah, off of John the Baptist, and once again, he mentions his own impending suffering in Jerusalem. Verse 12 says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus is saying that the sinful people that beheaded the messenger would not hesitate to crucify the subject of his message. If righteous John died at the hands of such people, how could Christ expect to escape a similar fate? Now we saw on top of the mountain that the cross couldn't nullify the eternal glory of the king. But descending the, the mountain, with his glory again veiled from sight, we see that the true eternal glory that he had would not spare him from the cross. So what are the lessons of the transfiguration? They're these. We shouldn't misunderstand Christ's suffering. One of my contentions, many contentions with the Roman Catholic Church is their um, insistence on di displaying Jesus, bloody, emaciated, wounded, on a cross because that's not what the cross was supposed to make us think about see the cross is the pathway to salvation for us and for glory for him Paul says that his obedience to death on the cross because of that obedience God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is glorified forever. Amen? Additionally, if Jesus, being appointed by God and faithful to his calling, had to endure suffering, even though he was the radiant glory of God on the top of the mountain, if he had to endure suffering, you and I have no reason to believe that we'll avoid it. But just as Christ was exalted in executing his Father's will, so you and I will receive the crown of life if we faithfully endure tribulation and persecution in this life. Also, we have to remember that Christ has perfectly fulfilled everything proclaimed in the law and in the prophets. And therefore, Christ alone is the centerpiece of every scriptural command, every scriptural promise. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than the prophets. He is the better Moses. He is the better prophet. And so we, may we boast in his cross, whereby the world was crucified to us and us to the world. May we await patiently the promise of his triumphant return as he comes to be glorified in, with, and through his saints, his beloved elect saints. And may we find a well-marked trail to Christ, to Christ and his cross, to his empty tomb and his victorious reign throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New. Let every part of it lead us to Christ. May that discovery move us to bear our cross as he's commanded us and to look expectantly for his appearing that great and glorious day when his unveiled glory will once again be shown to us, will be revealed to us, and we will live not for a moment on the top of a mountain, but we will live in the light of that glory forever and ever. The Bible says that there is no need of a son in that place because the Lamb of God, the Son of God, He is the light of that city. Amen? Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our communion helpers to come and, and attend to the tables. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your glory. <laughs> God, I said at the beginning of the prayer that we, we sometimes are so limited because we see with physical eyes. We hear with physical ears. We have the aroma of this world in our physical noses, God. We touch. We taste. Only by the flesh. So Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes to see your glory. And God, that as you stood superior to Moses and Elijah, I pray that we would see your glory. First of all, most of all, in your word. Where it is revealed to us on every single page. In every single line. In every word. Draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to come and receive the elements.
and uh, take them back to your seat. We'll take them together in a minute. If you're not a believer, if you have not uh, taken up your cross, as Jesus has said, and followed him, and that means a life of obedience, a life of repentance, a life of faith, of trusting in him and not in yourself, then, then just wait. Don't come to the table today, but please, let's talk. Come and see me and let's talk about um, what it truly means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can fully uh, receive and, and appreciate all the benefits of his death and his resurrection. For the rest of you, uh, if you come and receive the elements, we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the body, the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Lord, as we consider how you revealed your nature, your, the, the truth of who you were to your three disciples on the mount that, that day, God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus and God, you've given us this, this sacrament, Lord, so that we could, God, just see you more deeply, God, that we could have um, something with our senses that we can understand what you have done for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for that. Lord, we pray that we would, we would, in this renewed covenant, in the moment of the renewed covenant, that we would walk after you, that we would trust you more deeply, that we would trust in ourselves less, Lord God, and we would look to you and look for your majesty to appear in all kinds of ways through your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You will place your hands in a receiving position. I will read this benediction for you. I chose this because this is in Peter's um, first epistle, his recollection of the events we talked about today. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dismissed.